today's message like I think I hope all these messages you know have that future prophetic significance as we begin to kind of look at what is it going to be like during the time of the end and the great tribulation and then at the same time it has some very practical application for you and me today and you'll see that near the end as we're looking at the two witnesses in the book of Revelation chapter 11. You know, when I used to study the book of Revelation, you know, the, the two witnesses kind of were uh, on the periphery over here. You know, I knew they were in this passage and kind of gives you a, a summary of their ministry. Uh, but I used to think, you know, what's their role in this whole thing? You know, and then I began to really put again these pieces together and began to realize, guys, that the two witnesses are very significant, very central to this last three and a half years specifically of the time that we call the Great Tribulation. And so we're going to look at this passage in Revelation 11 this morning, and I hope that there's, you're going to get a lot out of this today. And so how I want to begin is just I want to jump in and read Revelation 11. I'm going to read through verse 14 this morning, and we'll, we'll cut it off there, and um, we'll, we'll jump in together. Revelation 11, 1. It says, Then I was given a measuring rod like a staff, and I was told, Rise and measure the temple of God and the altar and those who worship there. But do not measure the court outside the temple. Leave that out, for it is given over to the nations or to the Gentiles, and they will trample the holy city. What's the holy city? Jerusalem. They will trample the holy city for 42 months. There's that time frame again. And I will grant authority to my two witnesses. And they will prophesy for 1260 days. Okay, that's the same as 42 months. Okay, same time frame. Clothed in sackcloth. These are the two olive trees and the two lampstands that stand before the Lord of the earth. And if anyone would harm them, fire pours from their mouth and consumes their foes. If anyone would harm them, this is how he is doomed to be killed. They have the power to shut the sky that no rain may fall during the days of their prophesying. And they have the power over the waters to turn them into blood and to strike the earth with every kind of plague as often as they desire. And when they have finished their testimony, the beast that rises from the bottomless pit will make war on them and will conquer them and kill them. And their dead bodies will lie in the street of the great city Again, Jerusalem, that is symbolically called Sodom and Egypt. Interesting. Where their Lord was crucified. That's why we know for sure this is Jerusalem, because we know that's where Jesus was crucified. For three and a half days, some of the peoples and tribes and languages and nations will gaze at their dead bodies and refuse to let them be placed in a tomb. And those who dwell on the earth will rejoice over them and make merry and exchange presents, like Christmas Day to them. And then it goes on to say, because these two prophets had been a torment to those who dwell on the earth. But after the three and a half days, the breath of life from God entered them, and they stood on their feet, and great fear fell on, the, on those who saw them. And then they heard a loud voice from heaven saying to them, Come up here. And they went up to heaven in a cloud, and their enemies watched them. And at that hour, there was a great earthquake, and a tenth of the city fell. Seven thousand people were killed in the earthquake, and the rest were terrified and gave glory to the God of heaven. The second woe has passed. Behold, the third woe is yet to come. 
Interesting. So much to unpack here in this passage of Scripture. So the two witnesses, as you see, where I put them in the, in the graph or in the, in the chart, as you will, of, of the last seven years of history, we, we call that Daniel's 70th week. We're gonna, we'll get that from Daniel chapter 9. But I believe that the seven-year period that, that we call the, the, the last seven years of human history is divided into two halves, right? And so what's half of seven? Three and a half. I know we're not back in school yet, but you can, you can get that part right. So we've got three and a half. And again, this is the most specified time frame in the Scripture. The most specified time frame in human history is this three and a half year period. It's a, a 1,260 days, 42 months, a time times half a time, three and a half years, whatever. It's, it's given to us in so many different ways because the Lord is trying to emphasize this time period to us so that we will take Notice of it. And if you see, I don't know if you can see that chart very well, but, but I believe these two witnesses, they have a ministry that's, that we're told is three and a half years long. And I believe their ministry carries the second half of the great tribulation, or the time of great tribulation, the second half of that seven year period. And I'll give you some reasons why I believe that. Now, just for disclosure, there are some who think that maybe they have the two witnesses' ministry spans the first half of the 70th week of the last seven years of human history. Um, I, I don't hold to that, but there are arguments toward that if you want to chase some of those down. Okay, so let's, let's jump into Revelation 11 again. And it says, so again, now John is just coming off this vision from seeing the mighty angel with the little scroll. And he's given the scroll. He says, eat the scroll because you're not finished prophesying, John. John, you have more things to say about tribes and tongues and language and nations and kings and all these kind of things. And so John eats the scroll and it was sweet as honey in his mouth, very bitter in his stomach because he has the reality, the sobering reality of the true judgment of God that is coming upon the earth and, and how difficult these days are going to be. And so now he's, he's kind of continuing his prophecy. He's continuing the vision. And it says he was given a measuring rod. So John's given a measuring rod, like a ruler, a yardstick, whatever you want to call it. And he says he was told, he says, rise and measure the temple of God and the altar and those who worship there. But do not measure the court outside the temple. Leave that out because it is given over to the nations or the Gentiles. Some of you may have a translation that says Gentiles. And they, who? The Gentile, the, na the unbelieving heathen pagan nations will trample the holy city for how long? 42 months. Okay, 42 months. So the first thing we have to decide is, what's this business about a temple? There have been two temples in Jerusalem historically. Okay, just a little bit of background in history. The first temple, well, let me back up a little bit further. Mount Sinai, okay? Moses goes up on the mountain. He receives the Ten Commandments, but he also receives something else. He received the blueprint instructions for the what? Tabernacle, okay? And so he, Moses was told specifically down to the thread, every thread and detail and color and, I mean, to the detail he was told how to build the tabernacle because his... His building of the tabernacle on earth, remember, was a copy and a shadow of the tabernacle where? In heaven. And he said, you better do it exactly like I'm telling you to do it, Moses. Don't mess up the blueprint because I'm giving this to you specifically for a reason. So Moses comes down. They construct the tabernacle. And immediately when the tabernacle was finished and they made their initial uh, atoning sacrifice, the initial offering in the tabernacle, what happened? The glory of the Lord, what? Descended down 
and inhabited that sacred space. So what we're talking about now is sacred space. So you have the tabernacle, which lasted many years as the wandering, the wilderness wanderings and all the way through the times of Joshua. And then a little bit later, and of course you had the Ark of the Covenant that was there in uh, the, the Holy of Holies and the tabernacle and, and all the things that we've talked about here in this uh, in this study as far as knowing the, the layout of the tabernacle. We should know that. It's important, okay? Now, as the Ark of the Covenant was, uh, I think it was being stored like in Bethel, and David said, it's finally time to bring the Ark, where? To Jerusalem. So now we're fast-forwarding now to the time of David. He built his own tent, or t the Tabernacle of David, which was a little bit different, okay? It wasn't exactly according to the details that Moses had built, but it was called the Tabernacle of David or the Tent of David. And what he did is that David set up a tabernacle in Jerusalem to house the Ark of the Covenant. And he had priests and musicians there. And guess how, and uh, priests who were praying and musicians who were singing. And guess how often they were singing and praying? 24-7. They never stopped. There was always praise and worship and prayer going on in the Tabernacle of David. Okay? Fast forward... A little bit later, because remember, David wanted to build a permanent dwelling place for the Lord. And the Lord said, David, it's not for you to do that. I'm going to let your son Solomon do it. Well, David helped out. He got everything prepared together so that by the time Solomon became king, all Solomon had to do was give the order. And then at that time, during Solomon, during the, the zenith of the, the empire, the kingdom of Israel, when it was at its height, Solomon built one of the wonders, the ancient wonders of the world. I wish I could have seen it. One day we're going to get to see something even more magnificent than that. But this was the Solomon's temple. And after it was dedicated, what happened? The glory of the Lord, what? Fell and descended. And it said the smoke was so thick and so great in the temple that no one could remain in there. Everybody had to get out. Because the presence and power and holiness of God fell on that place. Well, because of the rebellion of Israel, the rebellion of Judah... Okay, eventually the, the Babylonians came in, 586, laid siege to the city, conquered the city, burned it down, destroyed the what? Temple. Destroyed the temple. They go into exile 70 years, then they start to come back in the days of Ezra and Nehemiah and Zerubbabel and uh, Joshua, who was one of the high priests at that time, and they are able to rebuild the temple, but it was not as, it was nowhere near what it was in Solomon's day. Okay, matter of fact, the, the generation that was alive to see both Solomon's temple and the, and the second temple that was built, they began crying because they're like, this is nothing close to what was here. But it was a temple nonetheless. And so the, the Jews were able to resume their uh, Levitical priesthood and the daily sacrifices and all those kind of things. And that went on for a while. Now, listen, by the time Jesus comes around, King Herod, who was the, the, the king over Judea at the time, he was making tremendous modifications and uh, improvements to this temple, okay? And so by the time Herod got uh, along, uh, the, the temple construct got much bigger, much more elaborate, much more expensive. And so it was pretty impressive even in the days of Jesus. But of course, Jesus prophetically said that every stone, no stone will be left upon another. They will all be cast down. And what happened in 70 AD? The Romans come in. Very like, likewise to what the Babylonians did about, you know, over almost 600 years before. And they destroyed the temple. And the rest of the Jews were carried off into exile. 
And from that day forward, the land of Israel was left desolate. The city of Jerusalem was a waste. It was a ghost town. There was hardly anybody there. Okay? And so when you read a passage like Revelation 11, and remember, John is writing this passage some 20-some-odd years after the destruction of the second temple. And now he's talking about another what? Another what? Temple. So we had one temple in Solomon's day. We had another temple, Ezra and Nehemiah's day. But this scripture is telling us that there's what? There's going to be a third temple in Jerusalem in the future. Now, that was impossible up until 70 years ago. 70 years ago, the state of Israel was reborn. The Jews began to come back to the land. And now we have a state of Israel. We have the uh, uh, government of Israel that is there. We have many, many Jewish people that are there. And there is a very, very strong contingency in the land right now, since there is a state of Israel, that they're, they're wanting to rebuild the temple in Jerusalem once again. And so the first thing we have to determine, so I'm going to share this with you real quick. Scripture reveals, okay, that a third temple will be built by the Jews in Jerusalem before the return of Jesus Christ. Okay, so don't confuse this because you can read in, in Zechariah and you can read in Ezekiel that there will be another temple in the millennial kingdom. Okay, and that's a whole other day for a whole other discussion for another day. Don't confuse this with the millennial temple. Again, there's going to be another temple in Jerusalem for a thousand years as Jesus reigns and rules from Jerusalem. There will be a temple in the city. This is a different temple. This is the third temple that will be rebuilt in Jerusalem before Jesus returns. Okay, now the biggest question I get or the biggest objection that I get to this is that as they say, well, well, Pastor Marcus, you know, doesn't the scripture talk about the temple as being just the body of Christ? Aren't we the temple of God? Yeah, we are. Aren't our bodies a temple? They are. And so a lot of people say, you know what, this is just talking about the church. This is just talking symbolically, spiritually speaking about people, believers. It's not talking about a literal, physical, brick-and-mortar structure there in Jerusalem. And so they take the few passages in the New Testament that talk about the body of Christ or the church being the temple of God. Or as individuals, we become a temple of sorts of God. Why? Because who comes to dwell in us? The Spirit, the Holy Spirit, God Himself comes to dwell in us. Therefore, our bodies become sacred space. That's all we're talking about when we talk about a temple, guys. We're talking about sacred space, holy space, sacred ground. Okay? So in a sense, yes, we are the temple of God. Yes, us gathering here today represents the presence of God. Because if you are a Christian, He lives in you. Amen. He lives in me. But I think there's something more to Revelation chapter 11. Just because there are scriptures that tell us that we are the temple of God and, and the church, in a sense, is spiritually housing the presence of the Holy Spirit, doesn't mean that this passage is not to be taken literally. I take it literally. Let me give you some, uh, just a little bit of background on the word temple. It's the Greek word naos. Naos, it means to dwell. It's used 45 times in the New Testament. 
And it primarily, overwhelmingly, it is used to describe the physical structure of the holy temple on Mount Zion or Mount Moriah there in Jerusalem. And even more specifically, this is the word that is used for the most sacred place of the temple. Remember, if you have any background in the temple and the structure of the temple, you had an outer court, which was called the court of the Gentiles. You had an inner court where certain people were allowed to go in. But then certain people were not allowed to enter into the temple itself, the temple proper, only certain priests and people, you bring your sacrifices, only the priests and those people who are uh, authorized to operate in there. And then you had the holy place, which only a fewer number of priests had the chance uh, or had the uh, authorization and approval to operate in there. And then you had the holy of holies, which is where the Ark of the Covenant was, and the high priest could only enter into the holy of holies, what? Once a year. So, so anybody else dared, dared to step foot in there, they were per, pretty much bound to die because that was the Day of Atonement. And so we see that this word temple literally means the sanctuary of God, the place where God dwells. And it is literally talking about a physical location more times than not. Okay, now let me give you the reason why I believe that this passage is talking about a literal temple because look, look at what it says in Revelation 11. It says, measure the temple. So this is, you know, he's measuring something. So to me, that, that tells me that it's a physical structure. So you can, you can measure these walls. You can measure this, this building. And then he says, don't measure the outside court. Leave it out because it is given over to the Gentiles or to the nations. And they're going to trample the holy city. So the temple's in the holy city. Get that? And they're going to trample it for how long? 42 months. Because I've heard other objections. They say, well, maybe this is the temple in heaven that John is measuring. Well, I have a big problem with that because how could pagan heathen Gentiles, unbelieving Gentiles, be trampling the temple where? In heaven. That doesn't make any sense. It doesn't make any sense that just, this is just spiritual or symbolic. This, the, what makes the most sense with this, guys, is that this, we're talking about a literal, physical structure that I believe will be rebuilt before the return of Jesus Christ. Amen. Okay? Let me give you some scriptures. Look at Luke. Jesus gives us almost identical language in the Gospel of Luke. He says, but when you see Jerusalem, again, the holy city surrounded by armies, know that its desolation has come near. Let those who are in Judea flee to the mountains. Let those who are inside the city get out, depart. Let not those who are out in the country come back in. For these are the days of vengeance to fulfill all that has been written. Now look at what he says. Alas, for the women who are pregnant in those days and those who are nursing infants, for there will be great tribulation, great distress upon the earth and wrath against this people. They will fall by the edge of the sword. They will be led captive among the nations and Jerusalem will be what? Trampled. Very same language. Trampled underfoot by the Gentiles until the times of the Gentiles are fulfilled. Okay? So we know that Jesus is talking about the same temple, the same Jerusalem in the days of the, of the Great Tribulation that will be given over to these Gentiles. Now there's some Old Testament scriptures that tell us about the time of the end. And again, this is not the millennial temple when Christ is reigning and ruling on his throne. This is a third temple 
that will be constructed in Jerusalem. The, the prophet Amos speaks about this. Let me just give you a couple of scriptures from Amos. He's talking about uh, measure with this plumb line in the midst of my people. He says, The high places of Isaac shall be made desolate, and the sanctuaries of Israel shall be laid to waste. Look at what he says. Your sons and daughters will fall by the sword. Isn't that what we just read in Jesus? You know, you will be laid captive. Some of you will fall by the sword. Your land shall be divided up with a measuring line. Interesting language. You yourself will die in an unclean land, and Israel shall surely go into exile away from its land. He continues in Amos 8, he says, The end has come upon my people Israel. I will never again pass by them. The songs of the temple, okay, same word, shall become wailings in that day. So many dead bodies, they are thrown everywhere, silence. So this is a, just a terrifying time. And again, the temple is in view here, okay? Now, now take for granted, I don't, I don't want you to miss this. Some of these are foreshadowings. Remember, the first and second destruction of the temple were terrible events, catastrophic events in Israel, okay? But they were just foreshadows. It's going to happen again. Amen. Are y'all tracking with me? It happened twice. There's going to be a new temple rebuilt, and this is going to happen again. History will always repeat itself, and that's the prophetic patterns of God's Word. Now look at what it says in Amos 8, chapter uh, verse 9. And on that day declares the Lord, I will make the sun go down at noon and the dark in the earth in broad daylight. We've talked a lot about that, the signs in the heavens. I will turn your feast into mourning and all your songs into lamentation. I will bring sackcloth on every waist and baldness on every head. Sackcloth, by the way, we're going to see here in just a minute, the two witnesses. And I will make it like the morning for an only son and the end of it like a bitter day. Again, the temple is in view here. And we know this is the time of great Jacob's trouble, the time of great tribulation. And then finally in Malachi 3, speaking of the return of Messiah, look at what it says. Behold, I will send my messenger and he will prepare the way before me. And the Lord whom you seek will suddenly come to his, what? To his temple. And the messenger of the covenant in whom you delight, behold, he's coming, says the Lord. Who can endure the day of his coming and who can stand when he appears? For he is like a refiner's fire and a fuller's soap. So again, the, the picture of Jesus coming in judgment on the day of the Lord, it says he's coming to his what? To his temple. Now, interestingly enough, Jesus could not have come the first time unless there was a what? Temple in Jerusalem. Prophetically speaking, his first coming had to be at a time when there was a temple, physical temple in Jerusalem. And he did. He came. We know exactly when he came. But he's not going to come a second time until there is a what? Physical temple there in Jerusalem. Now, let me give you a little bit of background on what's called the Temple Institute. Anybody ever heard of the Temple Institute there in Israel? Uh, fascinating organization. Let me just give you a... a here's their mission statement. The Temple Institute... This is their, from their website, is dedicated to all aspects of the divine commandment for Israel to build a house for God's presence, the holy temple on Mount Moriah in Jerusalem. The range of their involvement is education, research, activism, and actual preparation. Our goal is to restore temple consciousness 
and uh, reactivate these forgotten commandments. We hope by doing that we can participate in the process that will lead to the Holy Temple becoming a reality once more. Last time I checked, the Temple Institute has about 99% of every article and instrument and artifact and, and everything that you can imagine necessary to resume temple sacrifices and to resume the Levitical priesthood there in Jerusalem. Last time I checked, based on conservative estimates, because they're, they're already talking about starting the construction process outside of the Temple Mount, because y'all understand what's happening right now in Jerusalem, right? See, the, uh, the Jordanians, the Waft, have control over the Temple Mount, okay? Israel does not have control right now because they were foolish in giving away more authority they don't have control of the Temple Mount right now. And if you talk to Muslims around the world, there's no way that they would ever allow the Jews to rebuild their temple on the Temple Mount. But those, th th that will change. I don't know how, I don't know when, but it will change eventually. But in the meantime, the Temple Institute, they're working behind the scenes to have everything ready so that when the approval and the authorization is given, guess what? They're going to put the temple up. Most conservative estimates say it would take a year to a year and a half to have the temple fully constructed, ready to go, and everything in place so the Levitical priesthood can step back into the sacrificial system and, and sacrifices will resume there on the temple out in Jerusalem once again. So we're living in a unique day and age, guys. What I'm trying to say is that these things are not only possible, they are probable. They are very likely to happen, and it could happen in such a very fast time that we're, you know, we're unexpecting, and, and, and it, you know, things just kind of fall in line, and it all, all happens you know, very, very quickly. Now, another thing you have to understand is that the Jewish people understand something, too. They know that Messiah will not return until there's a what? A temple. Many of them believe that Messiah may be involved in building this temple. You know, that's a whole other kind of uh, mystery about this whole, how this whole thing is going to play out. But the Jews are, you know, many of the Orthodox believing Jews, or at least those who, who still believe in the Scriptures, they are very dead set on building a temple because they know there has to be a temple so that Messiah can come. And in one sense, they're right. They're right, but in another sense, they've missed him the first time. You understand what I'm saying? And so there are a lot of things to consider when we think about the rebuilding of the temple. Now, here's an artist's rendition, and I just, I'm not going to spend a whole lot of time here because you guys can go and, and read about this because there's a lot of debate right now, and I've, I've had the fortune. Uh, my wife and I got a chance to go with uh, Brother John and some people from church in, in 2019. We had a chance to go to Israel, to go to Jerusalem, I can't even begin to explain to you how amazing it is, but we got to walk up on the Temple Mount. Now, here's the great controversy. Some archaeologists say that the Dome of the Rock, if you see that in the picture there, that that's where the ancient temple once stood. And so the problem with that is, you know, it's not like the, the Muslims are just going to say, sure, you can just tear down the Dome of the Rock and just build your temple right there. How many of them are going to do that? You know, it's not happening, right? So some people believe if that's where the, the third temple is going to be rebuilt, something catastrophic has to happen. Maybe a war, maybe, maybe you know, it's an earthquake, maybe, who knows? I mean, that somehow that building's got to be removed, okay? But there's an, another group of archaeologists in Israel 
who say, no, 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 that's not where the ancient temple once stood. The ancient temple actually stood directly in line with the eastern gate. Because if you, if you think about reading scripture, when Jesus entered into the eastern gate, he went straight into the what? Temple. So most, some archaeologists believe that the, the temple, the entrance to the temple was actually directly in line with the eastern gate. Well, if that's the case, and many of them believe it is, then the new temple, the third temple, theoretically could be built where? Right next to the Dome of the Rock. Then it makes sense to see why would the Lord tell John not to measure the outer court of the temple because it's been given over to who? To the Gentiles. You see, if the nations are still operating and the Muslims are still operating up on the Temple Mount and having their worship there in the Al-Aqsa Mosque and there at the Dome of the Rock, you see, that is an unholy space. And so the Lord may be giving us a glimpse into how this thing plays out, is that maybe the temple will be rebuilt right next door to the uh, Dome of the Rock, and so therefore it will be holy, it will be sacred space, but everything around it will be what? Given over to the Gentile nations. I think that's a very good possibility of how this thing may just play out. Okay, and again, you can chase all that kind of stuff down. But here's another reason why I believe that we're talking about a literal structure. Okay, because we know that the Antichrist, the beast, must enter into the what? He must enter into the temple. And that's called the abomination of desolation. And guys, if you haven't noticed... The number one sign of the end of the age is what? It's this. So if you ever get confused and you're one of these people like, I don't, I don't want to think too hard about all this stuff. All I know is that when I see this Antichrist go into the what? Temple and desecrate the temple and, and claim to be God. Okay, now I know the great tribulation has begun. And it really is as simple as that. Jesus told us this. In Matthew 24. So the beast and his armies, here's the way it's going to go down. They're going to invade Jerusalem. There's going to be another holocaust. I hate to say it, guys. There will be another invasion of Israel, invasion of Jerusalem. There will be another holocaust. Many people will be killed. Many people will be taken into captivity. And he will enter into the temple. And that's where he will commit the abomination that causes desolation. And that's what triggers the times of the Gentiles or this time of great Tribulation, And we spent a lot of time looking at these scriptures, so I'm not going to spend too much time here. But there you see Jesus. He said, when you see the abomination of desolation, notice what he says, when you see. It's a sign that we what? That we see. A sign is something that you see. Okay, a billboard, when you're riding down the street, you see a sign. That's an identifying marker. Jesus says, when you see this happen, the abomination of desolation, you better know. This was prophesied by Daniel. He said, you know that the time has come. The time of great tribulation has come. And all the passages in Daniel, there it says, talking of the Antichrist, he will profane the temple and fortress, and he will take away the regular burnt offering, and he will set up the abomination that makes desolate. So let me just summarize it for you, okay? Somehow, someway, this temple will be rebuilt. I'm not sure exactly how it's going to get done, but I know it's going to get done because the Lord told us it would. The Levitical priesthood will resume. The daily sacrifices in Jerusalem will resume. And that will go on for a period of time. The Antichrist may be involved in making that happen. Why would he want to make that happen? Because what does he want to do? He wants to go into that temple, claim it as his own, sit on the throne, declaring himself to be 
God and demanding that the rest of the world worship Him. That's why He wants, that's why He's motivated. The devil is motivated to have this third temple rebuilt. You understand what I'm saying? So it is interesting to see that it's God's temple. It will be sacred space. But the enemy is also motivated in seeing this happen because he wants to profane and defile this sacred space. And so there you see all the passages in Daniel that I could go through. Um, Speaking of the abomination of desolation, there it is again. Uh, it, uh, it says it will be this time will be for a time, times, and half a time, three and a half years. When the shattering of the holy people comes to an end, all these things will be finished. And it says, um, for that time, the regular burnt offering is taken away. There it is again. And the abomination that makes desolate is set up. Okay, guys? So very clearly, there will be a literal, physical temple in Jerusalem. Here it says in 2 Thessalonians 2, Paul says, do not let anyone deceive you in any way, for that day will not come, the day of the Lord, when he returns. It will not come unless the rebellion comes first and the man of lawlessness is revealed. We're talking about Antichrist, the son of destruction. Now, what will he do? He will oppose and exalt himself against every so-called God or object of worship so that he takes his seat in the temple of God, proclaiming himself to be God. This is the sign of the end of the age. And he will exercise authority for how long? 42 months. Are y'all putting the pieces together now? So all of that should be clear. All right, now let's jump into these two witnesses. Let's find out who they are, okay? God will empower his two witnesses by the anointing of the Holy Spirit. And this is what they will do, guys. They will preach repentance and they will perform supernatural signs and wonders. These guys are central to the book of Revelation. And I've shared that with you before. We'll, we'll kind of touch on that a little bit today. Look at what it says. I will grant authority to my two witnesses and they will prophesy again for three and a half years clothed in sackcloth. What does sackcloth represent? Repentance. Okay, so they're, they're there for a reason to call people to Repentance. These are the two olive trees and lampstands that stand before the Lord of the earth. Notice what Jesus told the disciples. You will receive power when the Holy Spirit has come upon you and you will be my witnesses. Deuteronomy 19 says, Every matter must be established by the testimony of two or three witnesses. They come in pairs. It's very important. Hebrews 10, I'm not going to go through that. So this is kind of a picture of the two olive trees, the, the lampstand that stand before the Lord. It's kind of a mystical thing from the book of Zechariah. I'll share that quickly with you. But it says here, again, Zerubbabel, who was uh, the governor of, of Jerusalem at the time that the second temple was rebuilt. Uh, it's talking about these two olive trees and this lampstand. Okay? And, and he tells Zerubbabel, not by might nor by power, but by my Spirit. These two witnesses, guys, will be supernaturally empowered by whom? The Holy Spirit. In ways that we've never seen before. Maybe except for Jesus. Okay? And it says, these are the two anointed ones who stand by the Lord of the whole earth. And so if you want to draw that connection, go back and read Zechariah chapter 4. And you'll see this is a direct reference to the prophecy in Zechariah chapter 4. So here's what I want you to get out of these two witnesses. Okay? And this is where everything came alive for me. 
What we're going to see in the last days, if we live to see this, if we stay alive long enough to see this time, the, the temple rebuilt, the beast invade Jerusalem, the abomination of desolation takes place, I think it will be very soon after the abomination of desolation takes place, maybe right there along the same time that we're going to see these two witnesses emerge on the scene. And guess what's about to happen? It's about to be a supernatural what? A showdown. A showdown's about to take place. So these two witnesses will contend with the beast and the false prophet. Remember, the beast has his own prophet who's going to do supernatural signs and wonders. Doesn't that hearken us back to the Exodus? Didn't Pharaoh have his own magicians? So every time Moses and Aaron came before Pharaoh and performed one of the signs before Pharaoh in the land of Egypt, some of the magicians were able to do the very same signs up to a point. You see, in the days of Pharaoh with Moses and Aaron and his own magicians, that was a supernatural showdown, right? It's going to be the same thing that's going to play out in Jerusalem at the end. And so don't miss this point, guys. This is so very critical. This false prophet, the beast, they will be in Jerusalem. The beast will be reigning from Jerusalem. He's going to have three and a half years of his kingdom on the earth. And in the meantime, these two witnesses are going to be going before the beast before the false prophet, prophesying to them and contending with them, and it's going to be a supernatural showdown. And here's the kicker. The beast, the devil, the false prophet, they can't touch these guys. They can't touch them. They cannot be killed. How do we know that? It says, if anyone would harm them, fire pours from their mouth and consumes their foes. If anyone would harm them, this is how he's to be doomed to be killed. Okay, so God has a purpose for these two witnesses. They're going to witness for three and a half years, no matter what. That means that he's going to have supernatural, divine protection over them. And as much as the beast and his armies and the enemy and the supernatural, demonic armies that are coming up out of the bottomless pit, all of that, guys, can't touch these guys. Amen. Okay, because God has a purpose for them. All right? We saw that happening in Israel. I mean, excuse me, in Egypt with the Exodus. You see, Aaron spoke, and Moses would speak, and he did the signs inside of the people. Um, I'll skip on through this. And so this is very much likened to the days of Elijah, when he said, for three and a half years there will be no rain in the land of Israel. Okay? Same thing that we read here in Revelation 11. These two witnesses have the power to shut the what? To shut up the sky. So I'm expecting there to be a massive drought. Maybe not just in the land of Israel, but probably in parts of the you know, worldwide, we're going to see three and a half years of drought. Okay, that's what the whole third seal is all about. All right? And so we see Elijah had this power. And again, we're, we're told in the book of James, Elijah prayed that it might not rain. And for three and a half, three years and six months, it did not rain on the earth. Okay? Now, let's look real quick about the beast prophet because they're... They're the dark side. Elijah, uh, I'm not going to give away who I think. Well, I will go ahead and give Elijah, I do believe, is one of the two witnesses. But we'll see that in just a minute. It says, when they finish their testimony, the beast that rises from the bottomless pit will make war on them and conquer them and kill them. So when they're finished with their testimony, not a day earlier, not a day sooner, that's when they are going to be allowed to be what? They're allowed to be killed by this beast that rises from the bottomless pit. Okay. 
Now, that could be Abaddon, Apollyon, who comes up out of the pit. I think that's my best guess of who that is. But there's other, you know, is this the beast? Uh, there's a lot of, you know, it, it gets a little bit tricky when you start trying to in interpret those things. But ultimately, this is Satan's work, and he is given the authority to kill them. All right? Now, this is interesting. Those who dwell on the earth will rejoice, and they start exchanging presents. This is the only time in the whole book of Revelation that the world is rejoicing. Think about that. Why would the whole world be rejoicing when these two guys are killed? The only thing that makes sense is that for three and a half years, these two guys have been a pain in their side, a thorn in their flesh. These two guys are identified as enemy, public enemy number one and number two. Everything that bad that's happening on the earth today, they're going to attribute to these two guys. And so for a very short time, three and a half days, the world, listen, this is what's so amazing. The world will believe that it has what? We won. We, beat the, we beat the two witnesses. We have overcome him. The beast is stronger than God. He killed the two witnesses, the one that was making our life miserable for three and a half years. Finally, they're going to be in strong delusion. They're going to think that the battle is over. They're going to think that they have won. And they're in for a what? A big surprise, right? And so that's why they're celebrating and exchanging gifts. And, and uh, it's like a new Christmas day to them because these were the two prophets who had been a torment to those who dwell on the earth. All right? And so there you see the false prophet. He performs signs. Okay? He can make fire come down from heaven in front of all the people. So he's a pretty powerful dude too, right? So you can see how this showdown can go back and forth, back and forth, back and forth. And I think it would go down like that for a very long time. And he deceives the whole world through these false signs and supernatural wonders. 2 Thessalonians 9. The coming of the lawless one Antichrist is by the activity of Satan with all power and false signs and wonders. Now listen, when it says false signs, that doesn't mean they're fake. It means they lead people into deception. They're real. They're really powerful, demonic Signs and wonders, they're false in the sense that they lead people into falsehood. They lead people into deception. It says that these were uh, all wicked deception for those who are perishing. Therefore, God sends them a strong delusion so that they may believe what is false. Very interesting that we see that. And then, of course, we know the, the way the story ends is that they're, they're resurrected after three and a half days. Why three and a half days? I don't know. Maybe they know Jesus was raised on the third day, so they're like, if, if, if they've been dead three and a half days, and they're good and what? They're good and dead. Maybe, I don't know. But they're, they're resurrected, and there's a great earthquake, and many people die, and the tenth of the city falls, and all this stuff happens. And so I think that this is probably right there along at the end of the age, okay? And so they're going to be in for a big surprise. Um, remember the prophets of Baal and Elijah? When the fire came down from heaven and consumed the altar, all the people there, they fell on their faces and they worshiped God and said, He is Lord. So I think in a similar sense, when, when the world sees these two men be resurrected and uh, you know, caught up into heaven or whatever it is, many people are going to believe at that point, wait a minute, these guys really are from God. Amen. So God, even up to the very end, God's giving people an opportunity and we'll see that. Now here's the big question everybody's been wanting to know. Who are the two witnesses? And so I'll do my best 
to give you my answer. Okay, here's my answer. Best thing that I can tell, the two witnesses are Elijah and Moses. Okay, I'll give a close consideration to Enoch. Most people would probably fall between those two and three. I mean, almost everybody says Elijah is going to be one of the two witnesses. We'll see that in a second. I believe Moses is the other one, and I'm about to tell you why. But why do we think Enoch might be one of the two witnesses? Because he's the only other person that we know of besides Elijah who was translated into heaven and did not what? Didn't die a natural death. And so what I've heard is that, you know, it's appointed for every man to die once and then comes the judgment. So those are the only two men who didn't die a natural death. So maybe this is their, you know, this is the time they come back to die a natural death. But there is a little bit of a caveat with that because what about Lazarus? He died twice. What about anybody that was resurrected in the Old or New Testament? Technically speaking, they, they had to die twice. You see what I'm saying? So I think generally speaking, yes, what that means is you know, we're all appointed to die. We're going to die and we're going to face judgment. So I don't know if that necessarily makes Moses, uh, you know, rules him out of the equation. But I will give a good consideration to Enoch along the way. But here's why we know for sure Elijah is one of the two witnesses, okay? In Malachi 4, it says, This is the day is coming. This is the day of the Lord. For you who fear my name, the Son of Righteousness will rise with healing in its wings. So this is the day of the Lord as we clearly see. And look at what the Lord promises in Malachi 4. Remember the law of my servant Moses. And behold, I will send you Elijah the prophet before the great and awesome day of the Lord. He will turn the hearts of the fathers to their children and the hearts of the children to their fathers. Okay, that's a promise that Elijah will come back before who? Before Jesus comes back. So I know, I'm very confident that he's one of the two witnesses. When Jesus came in his earthly ministry, you know, they're, they're all, there's a big hubbub about who is this guy? Is he, is he the prophet? Well, guess who they're talking about? Moses. Is he Elijah? No. Is he the Christ? You see, they, they, the early Jew, I mean, the, the ancient Jews believed that before the Messiah would come, they expected Moses and Elijah to return. They did. There it is in John 1 again. They asked him, why are you baptizing if you're not the Christ, nor Elijah, nor the prophet? So these are significant figures in the, uh, the mind of a Jew when it comes to the last days. Let me tell you why I think Moses is one of the two witnesses. It's because his earthly ministry is almost identical to what we read in Revelation 11. Moses had the power to turn water into blood. He had the power to strike Egypt with any kind of plague, okay, through God, through, with God's help, with God's power. And he is called the prophet, okay? And so there's also something interesting about Moses' body. Do you know that Moses is the only saint or the only patriarch that we don't know where he is buried. Look at what it says. There's no one like Moses who the Lord knew face to face. All the signs and wonders that the Lord sent him to do in the land of Egypt. So Moses was unique in that way again. And look at what it says. Moses died according to the word of the Lord and he buried him. Who buried Moses? God did. Don't miss that. There's something, something's going on there. God buried Moses... We don't know exactly where. It was there in the land of Moab. No one knows the place of his burial to this day. And then you go to read the book of Jude, and it says, 
Michael, the archangel, was contending and disputing with the devil over the body of Moses. What in the world is that all about? Man, there's something going on there. I don't know why they're fighting over the body of Moses. I think maybe it has something to do with Moses, what? Coming back as one of these two witnesses in the end, along with Elijah. And of course, we know Elijah as he called down fire from heaven, right? Uh, look at what it says here. The king sent men to go capture Elijah. And he says, if I'm a, a man of God, let fire come down from heaven and consume your 50 men. And what happened? Pew, fire came down and consumed them. What does it say in Revelation chapter 11? If anybody tries to harm these two witnesses, fire what? Comes down from heaven and consumes them. Okay? And so again, I can tell you all uh, many, many more reasons why, but here's, here's probably the, the kicker, and we'll, we'll kind of close this thing out. When James and John and Peter are taken up onto Mount Hermon, which is the Mount of Transfiguration, who do they see meeting with the Lord there? Interesting, right? It says, Jesus was transfigured before them and his face was shining like the sun. His clothes became white as light and behold, there appeared to them Moses and Elijah talking with him. And then Jesus goes on to say this. Of course, the Lord says, this is my beloved son with whom I'm well pleased. Listen to him. And then the disciples ask Jesus about this event and look at what he says. Why did the scribes say that Elijah must come first? He says, Elijah does come and he will restore all things. So Jesus reminds us, yes, Elijah will return prior to my second coming. Now here's where I want to spend just a second with you guys. Hang on with me, okay? Because this is where it gets very, very practical. Very practical for you and me. It's interesting to think about the two witnesses. Now remember, again, why do I believe that their ministry lasts the time of the Great Tribulation? Because when we read the trumpet judgments and the bowl judgments... These are all these plagues and the uh, fire coming down from heaven and the waters are turning to blood and all this terrible stuff is happening. Who's, res who's responsible for that? Who who's calling these judgments down? The two witnesses. Moses and Elijah will be on the earth. They'll be contending with the beast. And every time they don't do, the beast doesn't do what they ask him to do. They're going to call another plague down and another judgment on the beast and his empire. Just like it happened in the days of Moses and the Exodus. Okay, and that's why I believe they're going to be here during that three and a half year period. But here's the thing we got to walk away with this whole message, guys. God is more merciful than anything we could possibly imagine. He's more patient. And what's God's ultimate desire? That none should perish, but all would come to repentance. What are Moses and Elijah going to be wearing during this time? Sackcloth. They're going to be calling people, weeping. I believe they're going to be weeping and pleading with the world. Please turn to the Lord Jesus Christ. They're going to be proclaiming the good news of the gospel of the kingdom for three and a half years, trying to cry out specifically to the Jewish people, to the people of Israel, but also to all the nations. And God is giving people an opportunity. Again, guys, this seems to be the theme throughout the book of Revelation. God is giving everyone an opportunity to repent. And then you read this in Revelation 9. They did not what? Repent. In Revelation 16, they did not repent. In Revelation 16, 10, they did not repent. Do you see a theme here? They cursed God because of the plagues. 
And so you, you're going to see many people who refuse to repent. Their hearts are going to be hardened and they're going to be sealed for the day of judgment. And, but you are going to see some people, hopefully more than we can think, they are going to turn and repent and give their lives to Christ and be saved. Because God's heart, guys, is that He doesn't want any to what? He doesn't want any to perish and neither should we. And so there you see in 2 Peter 3, it says, The Lord is not slow in keeping His promise, as some count slowness. He's patient towards you, not wishing that any should perish, but that all should reach repentance, because the day of the Lord will come like a thief in the night. Now here's, here's my encouragement to you. And this is, where, this is where I had to really wrestle with this, okay? I've told you guys lately that I've been thinking about death a lot. I don't know why, but I, I think about it a lot. And, and it's like, it's heavy, it's sobering to me. But you know what I realized this week? Is that I'm going to live as long as God wants me to live. Amen. And so are you. Amen. As long as you're here and you have a purpose and you are His witness, you're going to live this life, and you're not going to die a day sooner or a day later than what you're supposed to if you are living out your purposes as God's witness on this earth. And you know what, guys? That helped me tremendously because now I don't have to what? I don't have to worry. Amen. I don't have to worry. The only thing we can worry about at this point is that if we're failing to do what God has commanded and called us to do, if we're not being His witnesses, if we're being unfaithful, if we're being rebellious, if we're being apathetic or whatever it may be, then we may have some concern to be you know, worried about something because we're not living in obedience and being faithful to God. But guys, as long as you're here and you're being His witness and you're called just like one of these two witnesses, they could not die and they were not going to die until they finished their what? Their testimony until they finish their ministry of witnessing. That's the same thing that every the reason you're here today, the only reason you're alive today is to be his what? That's it. There's something else for you and me to do. Amen. As I ask our praise team to come up, I want you to think about that for a second. We don't have to be afraid. We don't have to be afraid to die. Because we have the hope and the power of the resurrection in Christ. We have the hope and the promise of eternal life in Christ. But more than that, we can be assured and we can be comforted to know that the only reason you and I woke up today is because who's not finished with us? God's not finished with you. Amen. Now, what are you going to do with this day? I did a wedding yesterday. It was hot. It was outside. And we were all sweating. And it was a beautiful wedding. And I, I, I was able to be part of the service with the groom's father. The groom's father also, he was a, he's a pastor and minister. And I'm so thankful because at the end of the service, and everybody's still sitting outside, and we're all drenched in sweat, and the wedding party has gone inside, and we're kind of waiting for our instructions. And he took about five minutes to do what? He shared the gospel. He said, I just can't, I can't let you leave here without me telling you about how much Jesus loves you and how he died for you and he's raised from the dead and he gives you eternal life. And he challenged that crowd right there. He said, I'm asking how many of you today, how many of you have told somebody about Jesus? 
And guess what this old pastor, guess what happened to me? I got convicted. Because it's easy for me to come in here and tell you about Jesus. It's a whole different story for us to what? To go out there. The only reason you and I are alive today was to what? It's to go out there and tell somebody. Open up your mouth. Amen. Be unashamed. I'm talking to myself. And be His witnesses. Because the day that we stop being His witnesses, we no longer have a purpose on this life. In this life. Are you with me? Amen. So I want to pray with you guys as we finish up this, this application. Um, very simple. Watch and pray. Watch and pray. I may have turned off my thing. Oh, there it goes. Watch, pray, and repent. Watch, pray, and repent. I can't stress that enough. So would you pray with me? We're going to sing one more song before we go. And let the Lord minister to you as, as you have need. In Jesus' name. Father, thank you again for just the word of God being opened and, and revealed to us and made alive to us, Lord. And if we take anything away from today's message, we take away the fact that the only reason that we have breath in our lungs is to praise you, yes. is to be your witness, to share the good news of the gospel to a lost and dying world and to call people back to repentance. So, Father, please, I pray that you start with me. Begin to work in our hearts, O oh Lord. Give us a burden for the lost. Give us your eyes to see. Give us your heart to feel what you feel. As you look out upon a broken world that needs the love of Jesus Christ, that needs the salvation of Christ, Lord, I pray you would give us that heart and, and overwhelm us, God, in the way that you feel. I know you're, that you're grieved, O oh Lord. I know that your heart is broken over this world. I know there's so many people, Lord, who are lost and without hope. Yes, Lord. Who's going to tell them? Father, forgive me for failing to be your witness. Yes. So, Lord, in our day-to-day -day lives, help us to become more bold. Help us to become more intentional and fearless, courageous. Lord, we need courageous Christians who will stand up against the, the, the normal flow, the normal stream of this world, Lord, and to be faithful to proclaim the good news of the gospel. Yes. Help us, Father. In Jesus' name we do pray. And all God's people said, amen. amen. Let's